Hey everyone, Pastor Brandon here, and welcome to the Sanctus Church Podcast. Our mission here at Sanctus is to glorify God by reaching and enabling people of all ages and nations to become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Let's go to the sermon today. Momentum is about movement. It's taking a step into godly purpose, investing ourselves into the kingdom, taking the momentary to eternity. It's something to be gained. It's a turning motion to shift, but always shifting forward. It's transforming. Our story is unfolding into a new yet familiar adventure. It's like holding a memento while recognizing the hand of the artist in all the new things in unlikely places. Saying what God's done before will happen again, but it won't look like what we're used to. It's a surprising plan only God could create. It feels like revival. It feels like anticipation. And it looks like His invitation. And we accept. So let us hang on with holy expectation and know that God is calling us to greater things. We just have to say yes. Hey, St. Jesus Church, good morning. So glad that you're here. Welcome back to the book of Acts. And actually today, we're going to walk into a moment in the book of Acts that is um, it's difficult. It's, it's painful. It's uh, hard to... In- engage with, but actually there's real beauty out of it at the end. Basically, uh, this is the conversation that's going to begin. Uh, Can God take our pain and can God walk into not only pain, but injustice when something happens against us that should never happen and he doesn't even want to happen, but can he walk into that and can he redeem it and use it to actually spread the good news, eternal life, to others. Uh, we have to be slow as we process this, but of course, the answer we're going to see is yes. And if that made you feel sort of angry or defensive, just uh, just take a moment and let's let God speak to all of us together. Let me begin with uh, the name of a person that probably most of us have never heard of. There was a guy named uh, Hiram Kano. He lived from 1889 to 1998. He's Japanese in background, born in Tokyo, son actually of a Japanese governmental official. Now, um, because of his dad's job, there was a connection with uh, American politicians at the time, and a very famous American politician in that time, a guy named William J. uh, Bryan, um, made a connection for this young guy to come and become a student in America. So he actually came to the States and did uh, uh, agricultural economics at the University of Nebraska. He graduated, interestingly, with a master's degree in that category in 1918. He marries. He bought a Nebraska beet farm. I was like, okay, cool. He became a teacher and servant of the Japanese immigrant community. There must have been a large one there. Now, in that moment, there was an ongoing um, issue of racism. And at that moment, the state of Nebraska tried passing a bill that would prevent, this is just, again, so evil, prevent Japanese residents from owning any property, and even more scary, actually not allowing Japanese parents to serve as legal guardians of their own children. 
and they actually tried making this law. Well, lots of people oppose this, including uh, a bishop, uh, an Anglican bishop in the area. And so he became an ally with Haram or Haram. So the relationship was formed. And interestingly, out of that relationship, Mr. Kano actually seeked, ordin uh, seeked ordination and he became an Anglican priest in 1936. So he becomes a pastor. And then in 1941, during a church service, he literally serves communion to his congregation. And at the end of that, he is arrested and interrogated by the FBI. He learned in that moment, he didn't know before, that Japan had just bombed Pearl Harbor. His name was written on a list, and he was called a threat to national security. He was sent to an internment camp and separated from his wife and children. He spent three years in an American prison just because he was Japanese. After uh, his release, he talked about how he served the inmates and ministered to the fellow inmates during that time. He spent the rest of his life as a pastor and priest. He devotes his life to the Japanese immigrant community. He's given American citizenship in 1952. Now, when he was 99 years old, President Ronald Reagan signed into law this thing called the Civil Liberties Act that was in 1988. It officially apologized for the incarceration of Japanese Americans. And at that point, granted them each $20,000 for that experience. Now, when they brought the money to this now 99-year-old Anglican priest, he said to his bishop, I don't want the money. And you'd think for a lot of reasons, well, why don't you want it? And it's reparations. And, it, on a, and he said to his bishop, God used that terrible experience as an opportunity, another opportunity just for me to preach the gospel. Now, that's not saying that what happened to him was wrong. It's not saying that the government shouldn't have apologized. I'm not making any comment about money or money's not given. What was so striking to me was this godly old Japanese Anglican priest was able to see that God took a horrific injustice and the thing that came out of it was the proclamation of the gospel. I see very little of that these days by Christians in any social media feed. He came to the conclusion that though inappropriate, God can take a terrible moment and the gospel, which is the thing that ripples into eternity, moves forward. Now, this is repeated all throughout church history in multiple cultures and environments by men and women and kids. But this is what happens in the book of Acts. So let's uh, sort of summarize this way. If you've been with us during the series, you know where we are right now in the book of Acts. A, a significant, unnatural act of God is taking place. Revival is taking place. God is doing extraordinary things. And during this move that is renewal, revival, and awakening oriented, we talked about those categories last week, there are always two other forces in the room. When God is doing the most wild and supernatural and even strange things in that same room, in that same environment, you always have the demonic and you always have our sin. Now, last week, we saw how the threat of sin in the community was breaking the move of God. And let me just read the passage as the summary. I don't have time, of course, to re-preach the sermon, listen to it last week, but you'll get a sense. Acts chapter 6, verse 1. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, so many people becoming followers of Jesus. The Grecian Jews, Greek Jews, among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. The twelve gathered all the disciples together. It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, 
choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. We'll turn this responsibility over to them. We'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of God's word. This proposal pleased the whole community. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procor Procornus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas uh, from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. So tons of people are becoming Christians. There's this profound move of God, and more people need to be mobilized with different callings and different giftings and different passions. And God, knowing that this sort of semi-ethnic racial issue taking place in the church could actually break what God was trying to do, he deals with it right at the beginning. You have two different types of Jewish people who don't actually like each other at all. They've all now met Jesus, and Jesus begins to undo all this animosity, hate, and presumption. But at this point in church history, very few non-Jews are part of the community of faith. Almost everyone is a Jewish person, an Orthodox Jewish person, who believes Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God. And so as non-Jews start getting incorporated, actually the, the, all the other ugly stuff comes up and all the stuff that has to be worked through. So interestingly enough, we talked about them last week. These seven men are picked, they're deacons, and they're full of the Spirit. And one of them, their name is Stephen. Now, he is a Grecian Jew. He's a servant leader. He's marked by joy. He loves serving those that have very little or nothing at all, but that wasn't his only ministry. If you keep reading in verse 8 in chapter 6, Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Okay, Stephen was involved in signs and wonders. This is the supernatural work of Jesus now done through the church. These are spiritual gifts assigned to some like healings and prophecy and deliverance, you might call it exorcism, words of knowledge, words of wisdom, etc. They are signs that God is in the room. They are signs that the new age of God is coming to the world through Jesus. And all these signs that, uh, that are demonstrating that the kingdom of God is now present and there are signs in a little bit of time what's going to happen eternally in the new heavens, the new earth. Now, in the book of Acts, just a side note, signs and wonders start with the 12, the apostles, but then multiple other leaders who are not apostles also are giving these spiritual gifts. Stephen is the first of many through Christian history to be gifted with power gifts in this way. Now, this next amazing moment is taking place and revival is still happening, genuine and awakening, and then opposition shows up again. So, the first round of opposition, Acts chapter 5, Satan tries getting a foothold in the church, tries to break it from the inside, God deals with that. The next form of opposition, inside, racial, pre-Jesus, hatred, anger against each other, that sinful issue is dealt with. Jesus saves the church from the sin issue inside the church. Now, opposition comes from, without the, from outside of the church. It's fast, it's swift, and it's dangerous. Now, it actually begins to bring to an end this uh, revival awakening moment, but it only does it for a moment. It all starts like this in Acts 6-9. Opposition arose, however, so despite all the amazing things, opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogue of the freemen. It was called uh, as it was called. They were Jews from Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. So interesting, this group of men that start arguing with Stephen are Greek Jews that had once all been slaves themselves, and now they were freed and they were called freemen. 
So this is really interesting. They themselves, of course, were slaves. They're set free. They now belong to this one synagogue. They all speak Greek. And interesting, Stephen has the same ethnic background as they do. This group of Orthodox Greek-speaking Jews began to see the implication of the claims of other Jewish people saying Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah. If Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah, then the temple and the law have to be understood from a radical new perspective, and so they opposed this. Now, the irony, of course, is Stephen was giving his life and time and money and ministry to widows from this same background. Anyway, it didn't matter. Verse 11, they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God himself. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen, Stephen and they brought him before the Sanhedrin. Okay, we're back at the Sanhedrin again. Now, some of you, this is your first time in church or you haven't been part of us for this series and you're like, what is the Sanhedrin? So let me just work this out. This is the most important institution for Jews 2,000 years ago. It was made up of the high priest, the priest class, and the scholars. This is the best, greatest minds in Jewish law, faith, and history, and even in family. And they, interestingly, had jurisdiction over every Jewish person living on earth. The Romans gave the Sanhedrin authority over every Jew. Whether you lived in Rome or Alexandria or in Jerusalem, you have authority. So I always say it like this. The Sanhedrin is a weird mix of like uh, the Jewish uh, parliament, or if you're American, Congress and, and Senate. And at the same time, they're the Supreme Court. And at the same time, they're a Jewish version of the Vatican that is spiritual authority. All rolled into one. So the story now shifts to this great hall, the Sanhedrin, the place of power, the very place where Jesus had been condemned and actually had been executed. This is the place also where Peter and John were told, not once, but twice, never speak about Jesus. Now, the first time we preached through this, they were told to shut up and not preach or heal in the name of Jesus. There was no penalty. Then they're brought back a second time. We didn't go through that part of that passage. They were told that if you don't stop doing this, we're going to kill you. And then this very wise leader, Gamaliel, stood up and said, actually, be careful. This might be from God. Let's wait and see what happens. So their lives are spared, but they're beaten terribly. And now we're brought back to the same organization, same institution, now with Stephen. And here's sort of the setting. Large hall, oil lamps lit, smoke ascending to the roof, groups of men whispering, watching. What would this Jesus follower do? Would he be like the others? Stephen, of course, was there because he was preaching about Jesus of Nazareth, his resurrection from the dead. He's healing in Jesus' name. He's proclaiming Jesus of Nazareth as the only way to the Father, as the only person who can establish contact between God and humanity. And he's saying that as he heals in the name of Jesus of Nazareth and does these miracles, that is a living sign that Jesus is risen from the dead because when I use the credit card, it works and it's in Jesus of Nazareth's name. God is living among us. We're positively possessed, you could say. And so this is proof. Now, the religious establishment, again, questions and prods and threatens and then silence. They wait for the answer. What would this Jesus of Nazareth follower do? What would he say to power? What would he do when intimidation is given visibly, palpably in his face? Well, like others before him in the hallowed chamber, he clears his throat. He begins his religious defense within this religious court. And we come to chapter 7. Now, if you read all of chapter 7, basic, basically Stephen's speech 
goes through all of Jewish holy history. 53 verses, by the way. Take a moment to read it later. Stephen walks through the holy history of their common shared Jewish faith. Don't forget, people forget this all the time. Stephen is an Orthodox Jew who believes Jesus is what? The Messiah. So what does he do? He starts with their common history. He starts with Abraham and then goes to Isaac. And then he gets to Jacob. And after Jacob, he gets to his 12 sons. And then he pauses. And it's like he looks at all of his fellow Jewish people and says, we know our common history, right? And he takes time in this moment to focus in on the sin of Joseph's brothers, who all, by the way, became the heads of the tribes of the Jewish people. And this is what Stephen says in verse 9 in chapter 7. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave to Egypt, but God was with Joseph and rescued Joseph from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom, enabled Joseph to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and all of his palace. So Stephen, Stephen says, God was with Joseph when his brothers sinned and misstepped big time. And here's this point. They're all God's people. They're all Jewish. But God was uniquely with Joseph. And it's sort of like he's like saying, guys, do you see it? This matters. Well, then he moves on. He goes next to Moses. Uh, birth, upbringing, personal failure. Moses is calling by God, his leadership run. And then he pauses like he did with the Joseph story. He says in verse 37, This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among, uh, from among your own people. He was in the assembly in the wilderness with an angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai. And with our ancestors, he received the living words passed on to us. God's word, the Ten Commandments. But our ancestors refused to obey Moses. Instead, they rejected Moses in their hearts and turned back to Egypt. And they told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't even know what's happened to him. Stephen slows right down and intentionally points out that God's people, even God's leaders, did not listen to Moses God's messenger, who God had given his very words to. They rebelled against the God they knew. Even when they could see his physical presence, they said no. It's like Stephen was saying, are you seeing the pattern yet? He keeps going. Moses meets God in the tabernacle. God in his mercy keeps living among his people despite their ongoing up and down and rebellion. Then he goes to Joshua. Then the giving of the promised land. And then he goes to David, his desire to build God a temple. And then David can't do it. God won't let him. So then he goes to Solomon and Solomon does build the temple. And then Stephen stops again and reminds himself and all his fellow Jewish friends and enemies and leaders what God himself said about the temple, the very place that they're sitting in. Acts 7, 48. However, the most high God does not live in houses made by men. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? Oh yeah, the temple's important. God actually asked for it to be built in one sense. But what's more important, the temple or God himself? It's like during the time of Moses. What's more important, the manna you get every day or the one who gave you manna? The point here is Stephen's going, 
the temple's important, but the one we worship at the temple is more important. Now, at this point, Stephen's judges would be uh, sort of sitting there wondering, where is he going? What's the point? We all know our own history. We teach it, what the God of Israel and the God of the universe has done. We all agree on this, so who cares? And it's at this point where Stephen throws gas on an already lit fire, and the place, like, goes sideways. It explodes. Basically, Stephen begins to say, all of our Jewish holy history was to prepare all of Israel and also the world for the coming of Jesus from Nazareth. And then he says, every time God moves in history with our people, the ones he called, elected, met, and loved, and given his life to and his law to, time and time again, we, his own people, have rejected God and rejected God's representatives, and now you've rejected him in the most grievous of ways. Verse 51, this is not how you make friends, but this is truth. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. By the way, that's a Jewish way of saying you're not even saved. You don't even know, you're not even in relationship with God. You're just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? Even they, they even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. No, this line, this line. And now you have betrayed. He points to them because it's the same group. You have betrayed and you have murdered the righteous one. You have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but you have not obeyed the law. Children are just like their parents. You're like the people under Moses. You're just like Joseph's brothers. You've, con you've confused the importance of the temple with God himself. You murdered the fulfillment of the Jewish faith, our Messiah. Stephen is just repeating in a very direct way what Peter and John have said. Jesus from Nazareth sums up the Old Testament. He's the fulfillment of the Jewish faith. Jesus was a real man whose life was marked by miracles, signs and wonders. Jesus was physically crucified. It was God's plan all along to do this even though the leaders thought they got their way. Jesus is physically risen from the dead. Jesus is king. Jesus is reigning right now. We as humans are all in sin. We're all corrupt. Even the most religious people are guilty. Everyone needs a savior. And in this case, being a Jew doesn't save you. Being religiously Jewish doesn't save you. Knowing or owning your Old Testament doesn't save you. Being a religious leader doesn't save you. Working in the temple doesn't save you. You're just as lost as any pagan Roman down the street. If you accept Jesus from Nazareth, you get the Holy Spirit. But you leaders that have the law are guilty of the crime you're accusing me of. You say, I'm a blasphemer? No, no, you're the worst form of blasphemers. Now, as Stephen is speaking, I guarantee that there would be increased anger and recoiling and horror. And this is the straw that broke the camel's back. Rage would break out as he flung the charge against them because they were bringing this charge against him. And he says, no, you actually are doing the thing. You're a hypocrite. When they heard this, verse 54, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. Basically, it's sort of like they're saying to him, you call us demonic? No, Stephen, you're demonic. We represent God. You don't represent God. You're an aberration in the Jewish faith. We're the, we're the guardians of the Jewish faith. You're nothing but a cult. Now, during all of this things, when things are literally starting to break down, what is Stephen doing? Is he looking at the crowd? Is he panicking, trying to run away? Is he looking down? Is he looking at himself? Is he looking at them? Is he scared? Is he gloating? No, no, weirdly, he's looking up. 
Verse 55, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Okay, let me just do this. <laughs> there are between 275 and 350 references to the glory of God in the Bible. The glory of God means splendor, beauty, magnificence, radiance, rapture. This is called the Shekinah glory or presence of God. It's the manifest, glorious, physical representation of God's glory. It's the same presence. Okay, I've done this many times before. When Moses led the people in the wilderness, there was a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Same presence. When Moses is given the Ten Commandments, there's this glorious, fiery, lightning-like, pre same presence. Right? When the tabernacle is dedicated, Moses walks into this holy tent, that presence basically descends into it. The same presence is, is done when the temple actually is dedicated under Solomon. This is the same fire that came down when Elijah the prophet confronts the Baal worshipers and it consumes the altar. This is the same overwhelming glory that Isaiah and Ezekiel experience when they're called to be prophets. This is the same glory that freaked out the shepherds when the angels announced the birth of Jesus at Christmas. It's the same power that overshadowed Mary. It's the same spirit given to Jesus at his birth, at his baptism. It's the same overwhelming experience that Peter, James, and John had with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. So this is God's palpable presence. Who is standing in the manifest presence of God? Jesus, with Jesus, Jesus from Nazareth. And where is Jesus standing in this glory? He's standing at the right hand of God. And this is scandal. It is scandal. If you went to any synagogue today and said this, people would be so offended. Jesus, a carpenter's son from Nazareth, is at the right hand of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, the great I am, Elohim Yahweh. The right hand in the Bible means all authority, all power. When a king extended his right hand, it was the place of ultimate decision, life, death, blessing, war. There, there's no talking back. And Stephen, in the middle of the Sanhedrin, says that Jesus, who had been executed by this very group, is actually physically alive. He's at Yahweh's right hand, and Jesus from Nazareth, the carpenter's son, has supremacy over the whole universe. Jesus himself, interestingly, during his trials, standing in this very environment, in this very hall, with many of the same leaders, actually declared this would be true. When they were interrogating, not Stephen, but Jesus, it records like this in Mark 14, 61. The high priest asked Jesus, Are you the Christ? That's Messiah. Are you the Son of the Blessed One? I am, Jesus said. And then he goes farther. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore, literally tore his clothes. What do we need? Why do we need any more witnesses? Because, by the way, if this is not true, it is blasphemy. Jesus is either crazy or insane or demonic or a deceiver, unless, of course, he is what he claims, which he is. So Stephen literally sees what Jesus said would happen, but he doesn't just see, he declares it. Verse 56, look, I see heaven open, and the Son of Man is standing at the right hand of God. Okay, this means so much. This is such good news if you understand it. F.F. Bruce, who's a very famous uh, older scholar, wrote this years ago. The presence of the Son of Man at the right hand of God meant for Jewish people, there was access to God that had been opened up that's more immediate 
and more heart-satisfying than the temple could ever provide. It also meant in Jewish theology the hour of fulfillment had struck. The age of particularism, in other words, the age of only one group gets access to God comes to an end. The sovereignty of the Son of Man was to embrace all ethnic groups without distinction. Under Jesus' sway, there's no place for an institution which gives religious privilege only to one ethnic group. So for the vast majority of us, well, actually for all of us, we should be like, if you're Jewish in background, you're like, wow, direct access to the God of heaven and earth without all the ritual of the temple. And for the rest of us, access to the first place, miraculous. Well, verse 57 they covered their ears. They yelled at the top of their voices. They all rushed Stephen. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their, clo- their, their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, by the way, at this time, you were actually not allowed to get involved in capital punishment. It had to be, it had to be legitimized by Rome. They are so furious, so angry, that they actually just don't care. Now, Saul is standing there holding coats. Saul later becomes a guy named Paul. Giant of mission, prayer, theological output, writes two-thirds of the New Testament, caught up to the third heaven, would be chosen by Jesus to actually share the good news with much of the non-Jewish world, sees the same Jesus in the same glory, all that stuff. But at this moment, he hates Jesus of Nazareth. He hates the followers. He holds the coats of those who are literally murdering Stephen and thinking it is God's will for Stephen to be killed. He's going to be changed, but not yet. He applauds the killing. By the way, this is the very first killing of the very first Christian. And he's saying this is God's will for this to take place. It says in verse 59, while they were stoning Stephen, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. When he said this, he fell asleep. Old school way of saying he died. Not to be too graphic, but don't read that too quickly. Dying by stoning is awful. The circle would have closed in, Stephen on his knees, stones being thrown. Just think about this. Striking maybe the left side of his head, ripping flesh, flesh, exposing bone, blood flowing, splattering. He looks up, maybe unable to see it of one of his eyes. He cries out, you know, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. I trust you with my death, Lord. More storms, more carnage, more violence, breaking of bones, teeth. Death is close. And amazingly, probably out of a broken mouth, a deformed mouth, he utters, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. He probably either had a brain rupture or his heart stopped, or, but he's murdered. Jesus um, died in a very similar way, and Stephen imitates Jesus in his death. This is how it reads in Luke 23. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And then he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he said this, he breathed his last breath. What could make Stephen um, bless and plead for his enemies as he died? Acts 8, 1, Saul was there giving approval to his death, and on that day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Oh, this is so interesting. 
Remember, we'll get this near the very end, but let me just say this now. Remember, Jesus said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And this persecution that was attempt to wipe out the church actually becomes the vehicle for the good news to spread. I, I know it's fall, at least where we are in the world, and um, uh, talking about uh, dandelions doesn't make sense, but just think about it. In the spring, when all the dandelions come up and they're bright yellow, it's interesting, if you can't unroot them, it's one thing, but when they go from yellow to that white and you grab it and either you blow it or move it a little bit, what happens? All those little things, those they're not even petals, but those seeds suddenly spray out. And as you're trying to get rid of the dandelion, as you grab it, it suddenly spreads out and suddenly you, you move from one dandelion to 20 or 30 or 40 dandelions. That is what has always happened in church history. As people try to wipe out the church and persecution breaks out and people flee, they take the gospel with them like a dandelion. Justin Martyr, one of our great leaders uh, in 165 AD, was beheaded for being a Christian leader. And he said these words, the more we are persecuted, the more others in ever increasing numbers embrace the faith and become worshipers of God through the name of Jesus. Or interesting, Tertullian brilliantly says, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Well, we're going to stop here and ask a series of questions, a series of reflections, and actually maybe more than that, what is the living God, what is Jesus, the same Jesus Stephen saw, saying to Sanctus Church, to us who are gathering and listening at this moment? Well, number one, um, you who are not Christians, you might be seeking out truth, you might be a skeptic and not believing any of this, you might be from another formal faith or spiritual, or you might be Christian in memory or a little Christian but not fully committed. Let me just ask you this question. How did Stephen have the ability to forgive like that? not to hold murder against these people. How, I mean, how could he do it? Because he wasn't delusional, high, or insane. Uh, let me ask you this question for you to reflect on and really wrestle with this week. What religious system, what philosophy, what therapy, what set of ethics, what pol po political movement could change a person's heart, not only to die for faith, but forgive well, injustice is happening. I mean, this is so different. We see in multiple other religious movements today, people, right, killing, and they're called martyrs, but they kill other people and then think God will reward them. This is so different. Well, here's why Stephen was profoundly different. He had met Jesus, and though he was profoundly religious himself, he had been confronted about his own sin. He had turned and asked Jesus to save him from sin. He, his life was deeply changed. He knew he needed a Savior. Jesus gave him forgiveness, new life, gave him a new worldview. The Holy Spirit wasn't just a sort of an abstract idea. The Holy Spirit lived in him. And also, he knew because Jesus physically came back from the dead that resurrection was true. So he understood that death was not the end and we will be raised again and we will live again. And all who give their life to him will have eternal life. And so actually death, though difficult, is actually not the end of the story. It's actually the beginning, so he didn't feel like he had to squeeze everything out of this life because actually this life is not the whole deal. Do you have the ability to forgive your enemies? Do you have the ability to genuinely forgive and to love those who you don't love, let alone love yourself, let alone not fear death? See, Stephen demonstrates something. For you are the most religious person listening to me or the most secular or the most spiritual. 
you will not find in any of those avenues what we see in Stephen through Christ. Would you actually like this ability, this freeing ability, and also not to fear death anymore? Then say, Jesus, the one that Stephen knew, I need you to do something in me that I can't. That conversation will change the trajectory of your life. Some of you are followers of Jesus already, and um, you've been followers of Jesus for days, months, or years. And um, what do we learn from Stephen's life? Well, there's a few things. Some of them are easily said. Some of them actually are more difficult. All of them important. Number one, what we see in Stephen's life is just a commitment to basic faithfulness. He was just doing what he was called to do. Uh, he loved widows. He served the poor. He used power gifts. He served in church. He stood up for truth when needed. In our culture that's obsessed with appearance and numbers and the outside's more important than the inside and it's always got to be epic and if it's boring, it's wrong, all we see in Stephen is faithfulness. Maybe for your takeaway, you need to just say, wow, Lord, I, help me to make the things of God just more a rhythm priority in my life. Standing for truth when needed, loving others, even enemies, going to a morning gathering or a connect group or prayer. You know, Stephen had a very busy life, but he had the marks of commitment. I just, how committed are you to the routines of faith? Easily preached, but how are you in the busyness of life? Uh, let me take another step back and have a different conversation. If you look at Stephen more like as icon, helper of widows, loving those that did not like him, within the church, by the way, and without, speaking the truth of Jesus boldly, using power gifts. It's interesting. I just want to throw this out. Could Stephen actually not, could Stephen actually be maybe what many churches are going to have to look like in this post-Christian moment? Maybe Stephen is sort of the example of what we're going to have to be like maybe in this next run. But deeper than that, I mean, we should all reflect on that. But as I was going through this passage once again and praying and thinking and speaking to the Holy Spirit, it was interesting. I had just a real strong sense that across our community or maybe beyond our community, those who are listening, that the Holy Spirit, as I've been speaking or you've read this passage, is actually saying to you, no, 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 you are Stephen. Like this, this is how you mold your life. You are a helper of widows, and you do love the broken, and, and you do and will have to love those you do not, who do not like you inside and outside of the church, and you will have power experiences, and, and you, you will. If the Holy Spirit's speaking to you at all about imitating and walking in the ways of Stephen, just say, Lord, teach me what that means. The last thing I want us to actually reflect on for real this week is... How is God going to take evil that you've experienced in injustice and actually spread the gospel? Again, like I said, the consequence of this attack was not what they attended. The gospel spread to Judea and Samaria. Remember what Jesus said in Acts 1.8, you'll receive power when my spirit lightens on you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Through this wicked act, God actually accomplishes more coming to faith. So actually one of the most important maybe things to wrestle through this week is either how has or what is God redeeming 
in your life that is not fair and is wrong and should have never happened, an injustice. And how could God use that moment to spread the good news of Jesus? And could that actually move you from panic and anger and bitterness to being like our Japanese brother who, even though it was incredibly wrong, said, I got to preach the gospel there. And Stephen said, even though it's incredibly wrong, I got to forgive my enemies. And as the early church said, though it was incredibly long and we were wrong and we had to run for our lives, actually, actually, we were able to take the gospel to Judea and Samaria because of that. Is the Holy Spirit saying to some of you, yes, what you've experienced is terrible and wrong, but would you let me now use it to spread the good news so other people, including your enemies, could have eternal life? Father and Son, send the Spirit, because this is never easy. Number one, make us faithful people. Uh, number two, if some are called to be like Stephen, and there's almost like a ministry forming our calling, speak that very clearly. Let them know. Lord, I'd ask by, uh, in, by the name of Jesus of Nazareth that the Holy Spirit would sweep through all of Sanctus and those listening and begin to identify places of pain and anger and injustice and reframe it, not dismiss it, reframe it, so there actually could be a redemption that takes place and the gospel could go forward. Help all the noise of media and anger and politics to be weaned away and there could actually be redemption in this. I ask this in Jesus' name, begin to do this. And for others who have not yet accepted Jesus, who are more like Paul right now than Stephen, Saul, that is, more like Saul than Stephen, uh, begin to open their eyes to the gospel. This is what we pray in the name of Jesus. Uh, amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at sanctuschurch.com. There you can find ways to support the ministry and the Lord's vision for our church. Last but not least, if you like what you're hearing, please hit that follow button to be notified when another episode releases. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next time.